This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Three-act scenario design. Marcus Wolf. Ars Magica Gumshoe with Jeff Tidball. And Stranger Things. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Rolier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Rolier's release and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Rolier at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Canon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something. It's why they're... Protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost in Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the smell of pizza, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us we've once more entered the friendly confines of the gaming hut. But here in the gaming hut, perhaps we are on a proscenium. Perhaps there are gas lights flaring, the roar of the crowd, the smell of grease paint, or perhaps not. Andrew Young, Patreon backer and doughty good fellow, asks... What are your thoughts on applying the three-act structure to RPG scenario design? I've read, heard, blogs, podcasts. Uh, there's a lot of slashing going on in that uh, uh, orthography. Encouraging this, but my attempts haven't held up to first contact with players. Am I doing something wrong, or is there a problem with applying a narrative structure to a collaborative process? I think Andrew has picked an answer. Robin, what do you think? <laughs> I, I think Andrew may be correct in merely looking for affirmation, but uh, uh, we bring affirmation not only to our beloved uh, Patreon backers, but also to all of our listeners, because I think, yes, indeed, uh, you have hit on something, which is that the advice to transfer the three-act structure, which I think is probably people are talking more about the three-act structure of screenplays necessarily than the mm -hmm. uh, three-act structure of stage plays to uh, role-playing games, is somewhat challenging. And the question I think we might uh, better examine for this little segment is, what might that be, and would that thing be desirable? So let's talk, first of all, about a three-act structure. Three-act structure in screenwriting supposes that there are two big turning points in every screenplay, one on around page 20 and the other on around page, uh, oh, let's say, uh, 85 or so. Yeah, thereabouts. Thereabouts. And that in each case, uh, there's a big turning point that changes the situation for the protagonist or protagonists uh, decisively so that there's no going back from that. And they can only move forward, forward, deeper, deeper into the plot. 
Now, if this was how to write good, I guess I could go into detail on my uh, suspicions about the third act structure in film, but this is not that hut. No, nor is it even the cinema hut. No. Uh, so, indeed, uh, let us look at the challenges of making that work or uh, whether that's worth making that work, he says, putting his thumb on the scale, in a gaming situation. So, Ken, what are the challenges? How would you go about doing this? Well, um, I suppose the simplest way to do it is to do it in a, in a situation in which decision-making is constrained. So, in your classical F20 dungeon, perhaps, you could do it. Uh, to, to give us an idea of the three-act structure, it's Tom Hanks is a dude who works for FedEx, First turn, Tom Hanks is shipwrecked on an island and makes friends with a soccer ball. Third act turn, he gets off the island. That's your changes, right? That's what we're looking at. So in the first act, your characters go into the dungeon and uh, the mountain caves in behind them, trapping them in the dungeon, which is kind of a dick move, but it's not unlikely because, you know, mountains, cave-ins, dwarves, etc. There's some screwing around, but they have to go deeper into the dungeon. Then at some point deep in the dungeon, they have to... They, they, something has to happen that is not just, oh, we found a way out of the dungeon, but it has to be the nature of our situation in the dungeon has changed. So they've been going through the dungeon, uh, fighting orcs and, and going all the way down through the, 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 the mighty cave trolls and whatnot. And they get to a point where, um, they realize that the orcs and the cave trolls are the only things keeping Demogorgon from busting out of the mountain and killing everybody. And so they're like, all right, we have to go back and team up with the remnants of the orcs and cave trolls and convince them to use all of their magic and all of our magic to put the the seal back on Demogorgon. And then we can hopefully get out of the cave because we will have proved ourselves worthy uh, by orc and or cave troll standards. And that might be a way to do a sort of a three-act structure. But again, it literally involves trapping the players inside a mountain to make it work. Otherwise, um, they will often exercise their uh, perfectly legitimate and non-protagonist-y right of deciding to do something else or deciding to kill all the orcs and maybe try it on with Demogorgon themselves. And so you don't get a three-act structure. You just get a big boss fight with Demogorgon, which hopefully they uh, have to teleport away from or something because he's very, very mean. Right, because the issue here, as it is in so many efforts to transpose things from other narratives into role-playing is that the protagonists of your story are unknown to you uh, largely, or at least what they're going to do is unknown to you in a way that they aren't if you're writing a screenplay, and that in a screenplay, ideally, you know, occasionally some of those turns, as you mentioned, the Tom Hanks film who's a castaway, a castaway. Yes. Uh, in ca <laughs> in this, is, this is Ken and Robin respect Robert Zemeckis very much. Yes. <laughs> It is a procedural uh, in which things happen to Tom Hanks. And so that is the equivalent of, you know, rocks fall on him and then he makes his way and discovers things from the cave trolls. But more often in a narrative, the turns in the act structure are because of decisions made by the characters. Frodo decides to leave the Shire. Frodo finally makes it to frickin' Mortar. There you go. There's your two things. Well, Frodo decided to do those things, and you don't know that your players are going to decide to make any one given choice. So if you zoom out a bit and think, well, I want to make sure that there's a, an element of variation in this story so that it does appear to have particular set pieces or sections that aren't just the same, right? It's not just, well, we go down in a dungeon... We open a bunch of doors and fight a bunch of dudes until we run out of hit points and then we leave. Um, now, of course, 
uh, hours upon hours of uh, entertainment have been had with that simple unstructured formula because, first of all, people aren't necessarily coming to the table looking for structure. That's not their evaluation of whether they had fun. It might, well, that, you know, it might be that there's structure within a fight or, or that they don't care. It's like they're exercising their uh, sense of choice and the choice between opening this door first and that door first is perfectly okay with your mm-hmm. players. Or to attack with a lightning bolt or a longbow. Uh, exactly. That may be more of the, the the choices being made. It might be yes. a tactical exercise. For and people. we've talked previously about how, um, you know, in a, in a football game or a hockey game, the structure emerges uh, organically from the action as opposed to being imposed on it. You don't have a three-act model for a hockey game, even though there's three periods. You just, you know, look at the hockey and then at some point you're like, oh, look at that. That was the turning point that really ruined the uh, the Red Wings chance or whatever it is that you're saying about the hockey game. But you impose that narrative from the emergent play, not come into the play and say, all right, we're going to uh, take it to the Red Wings and we're going to really force them to reexamine their lives in the third <laughs> act. That just doesn't happen. Yeah. So hockey is not dramatic. It's procedural. Right. Um, so what you can do, though, is super dramatic. It's exciting and compelling. <laughs> But it's it's not yes. about the player's dramatic pulls and resolving their inner. Yes, no, no matter what NBC wants you to believe. Yes, so th- so that's dramatic in in uh, beat analysis, Hamlet's right, definition. Yeah. Um, so, but at any rate, uh, what you can do is you know make sure that there are likely breakpoints, and so you can think of it in those terms. So, in your horror adventure, you are investigating the strangeness in town, and then your first act break is then you find about the creepy old house. And then you go to the creepy old house, and then in the creepy old house, there's a dimensional portal where the monsters are. So that could be a three-act structure, and that can be sort of a trigger to you making sure that there are different bits of stuff in your scenario plans, but you don't want to... uh, Either it has to feel perfectly natural to the players that, of course, once you find out about the creepy old house, you go there. And yes, of course, once there's a dimensional portal, you fall in. That happens. But anything more than that, anything that sort of uh, forces you to sort of drag people through these turns or assume that that they're going to do it in that order, right? Because it might be that the players very quickly find out about the creepy old house and then they get there or that they get really interested in a sidetrack in town and you invent a whole bunch of stuff about deep ones to keep them going while they're doing that. And, you know, eventually maybe you'll bring him to the, to the house. So... You might think of your three-act structure as just a three bullet points of your fallback of three cool things that might happen if things go the way you expect, but not a series of turns that you have to make sure that everybody gets through. Um, there are other three-act things in gaming. In Feng Shui, for example, the archetypal scenario pattern is three fights tied together by plot events that you can improvise around as you go. But even then, you know, in my home sessions of Feng Shui, it wasn't a failure to have a night where there weren't three fights. In fact, there almost never were because my group doesn't meet for that long. So, <laughs> what, you know, it, it's it's an improvised form. And like imp- improv comedy, the joy in it is not in the elegance of how it hits a structure but in the emergent properties of the, the creativity that come out of it. So do you think, Ken, that there's ever been a gaming session that people thought, well, that was really fun, but it wasn't structured. Does that happen? 
I'm, well, I mean, in a, in any hobby where millions of people have done it, I'm sure people have thought all manner of odd things. But I think that by and large, people are looking more for variety. And if structure occurs, then they will feel it more in their bones. And similarly, in the way that if a good screenplay is structured well, you're not sitting there saying, oh, that was a deftly handled third act turn there, Robert Zemeckis. That's you, the flaw of that, that you, you uh, have structure. The, you have the movie... It pulls you through and you're there with the characters and then only maybe later, maybe later, maybe never do you say, Oh, look at that really solidly structured screenplay. You say that movie felt, uh, that, that, that took me on exactly the, the thing I wanted. It felt strong and good and, and positive in ways that you're not necessarily analyzing. I want to go back to your notion of horror because of course, classically horror has its own stages. Um, what Noel Carroll calls onset discovery, confirmation, and confrontation, which in a role-playing game can maybe be uh, discovery, uh, confrontation, and resolution are your th- are your stages. Uh, because uh, in a role-playing game, as opposed to a horror novel, you generally want to survive the next day. So Noel Carroll's uh, onset is the that would be the the celebrity slash the beginning, the tag. That's when the characters come in saying there's been all this uh, weirdness going on. And so, um, discovery is the players investigating it. Uh, confirmation is they've figured out what it is and now they're trying to track it to its lair or hunt it down. And then confrontation is the big, you know, fight at the end. So horror scenarios and investigative scenarios by and large already sort of fold into a three act model because there is the gathering information, following the trail climax, which happens in all investigative stories, basically, because that's how the story kind of has to function to be a mystery at all. Right. And not coincidentally, those are the ones that are the hardest to improvise and the ones for which there is the greatest demand for pre-written adventures for that previous reason. And right. so uh, they they are more structured because they are more literary because people need them to be that way. Because otherwise they, they sort of come apart. Yeah. And again, that's not to say you can't have a horror dungeon crawl or a horror any number of other models of scenario. It's just that a, a, a classical horror novel and a, and a horror investigation uh, scenario follow the same sort of structure as does in many ways a horror movie because the horror movie, the first act turn is, oh my gosh, this is real. And the third act turn is uh, perhaps uh, if we do this very dangerous, risky thing, we can defeat it. And the, the, you know, middle act is usually where all the fun happens because that's just the way it is. I see a third, a three act structure emerging much more organically in a campaign than I do in any given scenario. And it's basically on the players are gathering enough information to uh, operate confidently in the, in the setting. Players can then operate confidently in the setting. Players then carry out whatever they cumulatively have decided is the job of their characters in the setting. So it might be that any individual dungeon doesn't have a three act model, but a three act model, uh, but the dungeon crawls build into it as are they just dungeon delving to figure out what it is that their characters can do? Are they dungeon delving to look for the rod of seven parts or are they dungeon delving to swat down Demogorgon or Orcus at the big final um, uh, showdown when everyone is, is many levels high. Right. And on the campaign scale, people are going to be less vexed about things happening to them because then it seems more like, oh, well, that's just the premise of this particular adventure that kicks off another wave of follow-up adventures. So that if the uh, your structure is, you know, they spend three to four sessions in the town and then you're working toward, well, and then they're going to have to leave town for some reason. 
And then you've got a bunch of possible reasons in mind when you start out so that you're not forcing them toward one of those reasons. So it could be that they choose to leave town in order to pursue a bigger threat or they're exiled from town, but whatever. They There's a first act is their little microcosm of their little world, their equivalent of the Shire, as it were. And then there's a wandering section in the middle where all sorts of picaresque things happen to them. And then you have your big escalation at the end of the campaign where suddenly the fight against the big bad is in reach and they have to begin to prepare that. And that's the equivalent of, you know, going to mortar. So I, I think you're right to suggest that a uh, campaign can be structured in a way that people accept. They go, oh, well, yeah, obviously we've reached the point where it's time to go fight the, the mountain dude uh, rather than uh, because people sort of accept the idea that, oh, here's our assignment for the week uh, rather than trying to require them to continue taking pressure until they leave town or until they decide to fight, fight the mountain dude. So I think we have pretty well answered that question and came up with a, a cool way to justify it all at the end. And therefore, the act structure that is this podcast, our particular four-act structure, can now move uh, via this transitional sequence on to Act 2. Do intervals between Ken's time machine segments leave you listless, bored, and itchy? Then you're in luck, because Time Watch, the wild and woolly gumshoe game of chrono-hopping adventure, has now blasted its way into our reality. Master of over-the-top, fast-paced fun, Kevin Culp collaborated with all twelve of his future selves to bring you a hefty, velociraptor-strewn tome packed with adventure. Published by the reality-maintaining overlords at Pelgrane Press. As Time Watch agents, you defend the time stream from... Radioactive cockroaches. Alternate reality robots. Apocalyptic anomalies. And human meddlers. Go back in time to help yourself in a fight. Thwart your foes by targeting their ancestors. Or gain a vital clue by borrowing a scroll from the Library of Alexandria. But watch out for paradoxes that may erase you from existence. Or worse... History isn't written by the victors. It's written by the people with the time machines. Recommended by one out of one time travelers. We have once more entered, as you can tell by the fact that we required you to take a retinal scan, the top secret confines of the Tradecraft Hut. And in the Tradecraft Hut, yet another Andrew has yet another Patreon backer question for us. And this Andrew is Andrew Collins. And he would like to know about East German spy Marcus Wolf, the so-called man without a face. So, Ken, what can you tell us about this particular spy master? Uh, he was the uh, spy master of the Stasi, and some say the greatest spy master who ever spy mastered. Do you agree with that? Um, I think he did a really good job spy mastering. I don't think you can take that away from him, but he had some really strong advantages that most spy masters don't have. For example, every East German citizen was by law a citizen of West Germany, so he could easily infiltrate agents into the West disguised as refugees or any other thing that he wanted to disguise them as. I guess we should stop and ground this with, with some time frame. Some time frame? Okay. He is uh, the uh, second in command of the Stasi in charge of the Foreign Intelligence Division, the 
Hauptverwaltung Aufklärung, or main directorate for reconnaissance, apparently. Um, he is running the HVA from, uh, 1953 when he sort of, uh, is put into a position in East Germany by the Soviets. Um, he had been, his family had uh, fled Hitler because they were Jews. And so they fled communists. to Moscow because they were communists. And, well, you know, m- many, many Jews of all various stripes fled Hitler, yep. but the communist ones mostly fled to Moscow. Right. So he fled to Moscow and he was trained in the common turn to be a spy or an agent of the common turn. And then once the Soviets have occupied Germany, or their third of Germany, he sort of, you know, I guess he did really well in class or something, uh, full marks on being a Stalinist toady. And so he got put in charge, basically, of setting up the intelligence uh, service in East Germany, and was so good at it that he just stayed. And so he ran the FHVA from 1953 until 1986, when he suddenly retired, um, in order, allegedly, to write his autobiography, which in a communist country is usually a sign that you are in trouble, but being Marcus Wolf, it may have just been he saw the writing on the wall and did not care to get caught up in the, oh, the whole system is coming apart a problem. Right. And his autobiography was not focused on his spy master years, but on his childhood. Yeah, well, that's because you can't really, while, while East Germany is still a going concern, you can't retire to write your autobiography of how I ran the East German intelligence agency. Exactly, yes. Even, even in the Gorbachev era, that was uh, not on. He did write an autobiography of his spy master years, which uh, it turns out he had nothing to do with all the mean part. Uh, go figure. Um, that, of course, is a, is a bold-faced lie. But he was... Yeah, that, that was another guy named Marcus Fox. That was another guy named Marcus Wolf who was doing all that other stuff. Uh, but, but he was um, super successful, as I say, because uh, when you are the guy in charge of a totalitarian government's intelligence service and going against a democratic government, you have sort of stru- structural advantages. When all of your agents have the same national background as the target, you have advantages. When they all speak the same languages, when they... Um, uh, can watch the same television, have the same training, and um, uh, you can put moles in willy-nilly, you have advantages. And, of course, West Germany was it, it was not really in charge of its own security to the same degree that another country might be, say, Israel, uh, because the British and the Americans and the French all had their noses in the, in the, in the dish, making sure that West Germany, you know, stayed on the straight and narrow, which means that there was lots and lots of sort of bureaucratic places into which he could insert people. Now, he also did very, he played a good hand very well, uh, as witnessed the fact that he stayed in, in position doing it for 30 years. And he had, um, some specific advantages demographically in that, uh, the many, 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 uh, young men had been killed in, in Germany during the war. And, and so he had a target rich environment for what he called Romeo agents, which were young men that he would send to woo and romance, uh, women who are in positions of, uh, not necessarily authority, but of information in the West German government. And so lots and lots of, of honey traps, only it was boy honey traps, not the more conventional Soviet girl honey traps, uh, got set up and his, um, uh, his, his Romeo agents would go in and they would find a lonely typist somewhere and, uh, marry her up often if they had to in a, in a fake ceremony that he would set up. And then they would be able to, you know, take work home. And by home, I mean to Berlin. So, uh, and I guess his big accomplishment and his most impressive mole was a guy named uh, Gunter Guillaume, who was a 
a friend of Willie Brandt's. What information did he acquire through Gunter Guillaume? Well, one assumes that he acquired literally everything that the head of the Social Democratic Party found out. So all national security briefings, all NATO briefings, everything that you would tell. It would be like having an agent, you know, basically that is... Um, uh, the, the, the right hand person of, of, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton or of, or of one of the Bush kids, you're, you're basically just wired right into the, the power structure. So you get full access to everything in his autobiography. Marcus Wolf says that one of the things that they got from having the guy right inside Billy Brandt is the knowledge that West Germany wanted no part of an attack on East Germany because Willy Brandt was very much a part of the Ostpolitik and we're all Germans together and wouldn't it be nice if everyone got along mode of German thinking, which of course was one of the strategic goals of East Germany. And when Gunter Guillaume was exposed, Willy Brandt had to resign, which meant that Ostpolitik was over. So he sort of set himself up to get wrecked by the later more conservative and then actually conservative uh, prime minister ships of Schmidt and then Cole, right? So he f- he found out that uh, he didn't need to have a guy uh, making Willy Brandt into a uh, a soft pinko, and then by finding that out, he ruined it for himself. Right. So it's it's another case of uh, if things had been left alone without all this spying and skullduggery, they would have been better off in the first place. And that's always a an interesting irony of the world of espionage is just uh, often it becomes a self-justifying exercise that doesn't actually accomplish its uh, strategic goals and, and might even be worse off as they achieve their tactical goals. Now, there's a, a part two to this question. Um, oh, I guess before that, we have a literary footnote, which is that it is often said that Wolf is the basis of Carla in Le Carre's uh, uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and uh, Smiley's People. Le Carre says, no, 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 not the case. Uh, no matter how many times you ask him, he keeps saying it's not the case. Uh, but Wolf himself was a, an admirer of uh, the spy who came in from the cold, which also has Smiley in it, and thought, how does he know so much about the inner workings of the East uh, German intelligence apparatus? So, and also the, um, uh, the the number two guy in the HVA in Spy Who Came In From The Cold is a German Jew who fled to Moscow and comes back and is ambitious and is being kept down by a thuggish brute. Um, and all of that is very, very similar to Marcus Wolf's name. And there is even apparently someone who is codenamed Wolf in an early draft of Spy Who Came In From The Cold. And Le Carre again says, no, I knew nothing at the time. And that may be Le Carre uncharacteristically keeping his, uh, his, his job secrets because that is a really close to the bone commonality there. So I guess it's not outside the realm of possibility that it was just a literary genius that created Fiedler in Spy Who Came From The Cold, but I think that maybe someone in the German section of MI6 was talking to Le Carre over uh, lunch and spilled a couple of things. Right. And this was at a time when there wasn't even a photo of Wolf that everybody agreed was a photo of him. So that was a, that would have been a, a good get to have found that. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, to add our own literary nonsense to this, uh, Andrew would also like to know how to use Marcus Wolf in Fall of Delta Green, which of course is the uh, Trail of Cthulhu book you're working on that has uh, the 60s history of Delta Green, and this is the perfect time to have Marcus Wolf doing things. What is Marcus Wolf doing in a Cthuloid intelligence world? Okay. Um, there's a couple of things that you sort of need to decide about the campaign before you go in. You have to decide um, how many of the canonical uh, mythos groups 
are there, uh, our counter mythos groups are active. Uh, there's a GRUSV8 in the Soviet Union. There's Pisces in Britain and there's Delta Green in America. Those are sort of, and M Epic in Canada, but that's irrelevant to the East Germans, I think, at this point. Although maybe it's not. There's Canadians in NATO. So you've got these possible Western targets. Obviously, Wolf is going into NATO command. Uh, anyone who's briefed by Delta Green in Germany is going to get uh, this information. Does he have access to GRUSV8? Or is he digging around in the ruins of the Karotekia, the old Nazi mythos uh, directive, and discover, oh, ho, those Nazis were up to something. And so then does Marcus Wolf become a guy who, like GRUSV8 and like other human intelligence agencies, is trying to uh, stanch the mythos and maybe is sort of your secret ally getting Delta Green guys in and out of East Berlin? Or is it like he treated the Libyans and the PLO and all the other terrorists? He says, great, I can weaponize this and send it west. And oh, if there's blowback, it's not my problem. I have a comfortable office. And uh, so is he sort of not so much running, uh, you know, not a mythos mastermind, but if there's a mythos cultist who wants to do something dangerous and stupid in Germany, is Marcus Wolf the guy who's supplying him with the wire cutters and the plastique needed to do it? And I think maybe that is the more fun way to deal with Marcus Wolf is that he is not mythos savvy, but he knows that the Karotechia got up to all manner of craziness. And he's like, well, all manner of craziness is exactly what I want to export to the West. So he's looking for old Karatechia survivors, people who were uh, driven mad by the various mythos uh, events in Germany during the war. And he's, you know, going into the bloodlines and doing all the other sort of Lovecraftian research, but he's not doing it from a position of a believer. He's doing it or even from a position of a person who wants to gain more mythos knowledge, he just wants to find people who will reliably do dangerous, terrible things in the West. Here's some sand to throw in the gears. Exactly, right. And so I think that might be more fun, because you don't want to have Wolf, you know, sitting there, you know, croaking in Batrachian fashion because he's been taken over by Hastur or something. Or maybe you do, but I think it's more fun and more true to Marcus Wolf's character if he is just a completely amoral technocrat who is sending these guys West because he knows that they will do horrible things and weaken the West's uh, society. Right. And just as uh, having a mole in Willie Brandt's life actually messed everything up, you could also have that sort of fun, interesting uh, Lecrae-style blowback where, you know, the the crazy thing that he unleashes comes back to haunt him as well. And that might have the fun option of, you know, the Stasi agents uh, approach your Delta Green agents and say, oh, well, uh, there's there's this thing. Uh, we don't really know how to deal with it. Uh, we'll give you bad uh, East German clothing to fit in if you'll come over and uh, take care of this for us. So that could be a, a sort of a fun... And it, it might even be a thing where not so much uh, the Stasi do, but their bosses in Delta Green say, you have to go into East Germany and fix a mythos problem that Marcus Wolf has allowed to happen while he's, you know, breeding his little farm of terrorists. Um and the reason you do is because we want to trade for four American agents that are being held in East, in East Germany. And you're just part of the Cold War spy game. And so you're not even being sent in to protect America. You're just being sent in to clean up some communist monster's mess because your bosses want these spies back. Right. So uh, I think we've uh, pretty well answered that. Are there any uh, footnotes you have yet to footnote? Uh, the only other footnote that I have of Marcus Wolf is that, uh, like many, uh, German, uh, uh, totalitarian apparatchiks named Wolf, I suspect him of werewolf tendencies. Oh, right. Yes, of course. Yes. We, we wouldn't want the obvious thing to go without being mentioned. Right. Uh, much like, you know, uh, SS, uh, General, uh, Carl Wolf, 
I think Marcus Wolf is also a werewolf, and there may be a red and brown werewolf uh, battle going on behind the scenes that we should, you know, keep an eye on. Right. Well, uh, let's uh, look out in particular for lycanthropy as we enter this next commercial message. What did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths can be... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This Glory Mantle podcast is also brought to you by patrons exactly like... Drew Scheel. Ethan James. Isaac Priestley. Darren Dumay. And James Pearson. Welcome <laughs> to yet another edition of Ken and Robin Talk to Somebody Else. And uh, this time we are here, uh, we're rocketing back in time once again to Gen Con. This time, unlike our other uh, interviews that you may have heard or will be hearing, uh, this is after the show. So instead of being all perky and bushy-tailed, uh, if we form complete sentences, uh, you will be lucky, dear listener. But uh, we want to make sure that we uh, grabbed our dear boon compadre, Jeff Tidball, uh, who is going to tell us all about an awesome new Atlas Games project that will be of great interest to you and especially of great interest to us because, uh, Jeff, you are working on... Magic Shoe is the working title of the thing. It is certainly not the release title. <laughs> and, and, yeah, we said that about Bubblegum Shoe, too. So, yeah, be well, be careful what your working already. title is. It stick. You may not want to say it on a nationally prominent podcast. With a worse one? <laughs> yes, ideally. Okay. Yeah, start start working on something in Latin. Well, I can always blame Cam. Cam Banks is it's his working title. So. Aha! There you go. Now that we know that it is Cam's fault, yeah, we can progress on. with what is Magic Shoe now that we've whetted the audience's uh, appetite for such a thing. And they're imagining something with Kurt Russell maybe in the 70s and a pair of magic tennis shoes that allow him to win the heart of some forgettable teenage actress uh, on the Disney stable and perhaps overcome at a <laughs> baseball game. But in he, fact, it's better than that, isn't it? Is, it? 
it is even better. So Magic Shoe is a uh, new core game that combines the Ars Magica Mythic Europe setting with the Gumshoe Rules Engine uh, in a way that is extremely exciting to me because I'm a big fan of both of those things. And so, like, when Cam Banks came up with the original idea to do this, I encouraged him to keep moving forward with it until we got it approved to develop and then eventually wrestled it off of his desk so that I could write <laughs> so, large bits of it myself. So you, you made him do all the heavy lifting groundwork stuff, getting uh, John Nephew on board, and then he ripped it from his uh, from his claws. That's as it pronounced right. executive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I understand you uh, did a seminar here at Gen Con all about this, and the Ars Magica fans were, were more gruntled, perhaps, than one would expect from a change to the mythic Europe, Europe uh, universe? Yeah, so the thing that we've kind of discovered over multiple years, especially when talking to the Ars Magica fans, is that there is a lot less concern and confusion like when we're able to, to talk directly about our plans with a room full of folks who are big fans of it and explain why we're thinking what we're thinking, right? It, it, out in the internet, even the most well-intentioned things turn into even the most bitter horrors. But but we've had really good luck just like talking about what the plan is and once they understand why that's the plan and how it might be awesome for them in their games and how it does not mean that all of their 5th edition books will spontaneously burn up and they will never be able to play them again. Um, it went really well. And we also ran the game, actually, at Gen Con. We had scheduled events where we ran the pre-alpha version of Magic Shoe and, and a scenario that shows off how it goes, and we had great response to that. People had a, had a really good time, even some people who, who I had the sense came skeptical. So uh, you bring up the uh, reason for the plan uh, and how, it, how well it works when you share it. Can you share that with your listening audience? With the the what what the game's going to be like? No, I mean why why do Magic Shoe as opposed to Ars Magica unto the Infinitieth Edition? Right on. Well, so we we actually started thinking a couple of years ago just about different lenses to view Mythic Europe in, and John Nephew, the president of Atlas, is super interested in that idea. One of the first things that we did was actually even a larger departure than this one is. We did a, a pair of fiasco play sets that are set in Mythic Europe. So there's one where grogs do hilarious Cone Brothers-esque things, and one that is a, a senile Magus's recollection of things that happened in the past. So that, we thought, was a really interesting way to explore Mythic Europe. And so then this is just another one. Rather than focusing on all of the things that happen at a Covenant, it, it takes all of the things that work really well about Gumshoe and solve problems that Ars Magica has with investigative scenarios like even a newly created wizard can just find out all the things. So what is the core activity? What is a, a typical... Well, what, what happens in this scenario so, that you're running? So in, the, in this particular scenario um, is, is emblematic of how we suspect that the game will go. It's almost kind of a monster of the week, investigation of the week show where the players are a, a quasitor and accompanying companions and magi, or a group of quasitors, however they want to do that. And, and the quasitor is a mythic Europe term for kind of the judge-jury executioners who police the Order of Hermes. So they get word that, that a covenant in the Black Forest is agitated that one of their magi has gone off to found another covenant nearby, which is in violation of the First Covenant's charter, and they would like some justice done. And so the characters come into that situation, and like with all 
good gumshoe scenarios discover that it is more complicated than they think and that deciding what to do involves making moral decisions and and uh, that it's complicated so these uh, so basically you're playing kind of the Ars Magica version of like the Vemic courts right that's absolutely so and and uh, people respond really well to that we cam discovered when he looked back at the last 10 years of 5th edition supplements that many, many of the published scenarios were investigative scenarios. And so even looking back without having realized it at the time, these are the kinds of stories that the fans of that game have, have liked to tell most of all. So I think everyone, has, everyone who's played Ars Magica, everyone who's an Ars Magica fan, has two questions. One, uh, how can you possibly have translated the Latin like that? And two... What's the magic system going to be like? How is that going to blend with the Gumshoe engine, or is it going to be the Ars Magica magic engine that's been uh, ported over and, and added onto the structure of Gumshoe? It actually came together suspiciously well, so I suspect <laughs> that in some round of beta testing it will all fall apart into flames. But uh, it was kind of as simple as adding on a third category of skills to Gumshoe that is very much like investigative skills, but is also useful for casting spells. So it uses a system of techniques and forms that Ars Magica has always had, although we have varied the list of forms a little bit in, in, a, little, in, in a sense based on things that David Chart, who was the line developer, learned from running that line for 12 years or, or however long it was that he ran it. So there are, um, you, you combine those in the same way that you use investigative abilities and can kind of do things that way. One of the things that Cam realized while he was doing early development on it is that you can also use those magical forms which are used to cast spells as uh, spend opportunities to do investigative things that you don't have already. So there is a, a tarum is magic that allows you to know things about the earth and so on. And so in a pinch you can make a tarum spend to track. And so that winds up being a really interesting way that you can use the system in a way that's sort of intended, but so far as I know is not really happened in the past. Right, so you're codifying uh, not necessarily the exclusive list of spends for those abilities, but you're giving a baseline list where you can look at it because in the way that we've typically done it is it's just situational in the adventures, but in the spell description for that particular ability there will be, here's a bunch of common spends that you can expect to use. I think so, work. yeah. In addition to being able to use them for all of the traditional spontaneous and formulaic and ritual spells that also will exist in the system. So uh, what stage are you at in the development process? So I've been telling people pre-alpha, so it is kind of, there are maybe 10,000 words of this that's all bullet points and nonsense. And so we know what all of the abilities do. We've got the ability list, I think, 95 or 98% done. The heavy lifting now is to figure out what all of the form and technique combinations are good for. And then also to figure out how much background is to be, is appropriate to present in a core book like this, because there's obviously a gigantic raft of existing background material, and it, it does not help anyone to put all of that into this book. So um, pre-alpha that will very soon be on to something I think that we can play test more widely. And uh, I guess what people always want to know, and I'm sure they asked at the uh, seminar, is what's your, uh, and 
we all know that time frames are fungible. What's your uh, time frame that you're looking at in terms of letting people uh, give you their money for this product? We think that this is probably a 2017 Kickstarter. We were thinking that it might be as early as the fourth quarter of this year, but my summer has gotten away from me, and so it's on me that that has not happened. Uh, but it's in a state that is good, and since there is so much material that's being adapted instead of created from whole cloth, I think we can be pretty comfortable in saying that that's sometime next year. Right, and it's super helpful when doing a Kickstarter of this kind to have a playable version of the game that you can show people. That's what we do with Feng Shui too, and uh, so I assume you want to have it in a higher state of readiness. Yeah, for absolutely. That as well. So. So uh, what were the other big questions that you were getting at the seminar? What did the Ars Magica... You've been getting lots of, what, what's the gumshoe angle on this? What did the Ars Magica people want to know about this? So one of the other big parts of Ars Magica traditionally is the kind of covenant and year-on-year, season-on-season advancement of my wizard's powers and the building of our covenant and its library and so on. And so people want to know kind of how that fits into it. And the answer to that is, at the moment, that we kind of think that that's not part of Magic Shoe. That Magic Shoe is really about doing these investigations and uh, creating a core book that totally focuses on that. On the Quasitors. Exactly. And so they, they would not have, like, the you know a season track for the Quasitor order or anything. They would just be going around uh, like circuit judges. Yeah, exactly. Right. Although the one thing that... a fans suggested to me when, when we were talking after one of the playtests is that a seasonal mechanism for furthering investigations, like on a campaign scale, might be wise. If, if, some, if we need to know some particular thing that is very hard to learn, it might make sense and be in keeping with what Ars Magica has been to go away and think about that for three months and see what happens. So that was a completely new angle on how something that has been in there for a long time might be incorporated here that hadn't really occurred to me. And uh, given the bookshop uh, system in Bookhounds of London, which is a tiny uh, and nobular version of those uh, original library and covenant rules, because that is where I made them from, <laughs> you can you know use that again to blow up if you ever do a more conventional Ars Magica gumshoe, magic shoe, game in which you're more likely to be regular old wizards who are looking for weiss and killing manticores and uh, being hounded by fairies and whatnot. Yeah, I think so. And, and one of the nice things about Kickstarter is that if we discover that everyone is extremely hungry for that, it, we can you, put it in. You and, can promise and, to do it. And, yeah. you know, they can show us with monies. Right, because that's a, a thing that goes through a, a lot of the gumshoe books is alternate campaign frames where here's the main thing, but here's another alternate uh, way of uh, doing it. So uh, were there any other big questions that we haven't uh, covered from the audience? or Well, one, some of the typical questions that always come up, sort of concerns that arose were, is this the sixth edition of Ars Magica? No, it's not. Is this going to affect the fun I already have? No, it isn't. All of the things. Is it going to come into your house and steal your existing copies of uh, Ars Magica and pitch them out the window? Right, and so it, I think that that's. But a just natural. in case you think it might, you should order well, back copies yes, exactly. from those games, and, right, and, and then store them in a safe place, and secure them well. In yeah, the maybe location. have four or five drops, safety drops, right, where you have them in a footlocker. It seems wise. I mean, that's what I would do, obviously, if someone were in danger of doing that. 
if someone were endangering your books, that, yes, right. I would not want to be in that city. No, you right. wouldn't want to be in that city. And uh, and for those of you at home who want to start your own podcast, note how cleverly uh, Robin just turned around the question of asking questions to Jeff by just saying, what did they ask you in the seminar, Jeff? Because we are tired. And uh, so we're very happy, uh, Jeff, that you uh, swung by. And I think our audience is going to be very excited to know about uh, what this game that will is now called Magic Shoe and will eventually acquire some other title. So thanks a lot for stopping by. Thanks, Ken and Robin. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This players-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agency that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. So it is time to set up your new groovy uh, widescreen TVs and fire up your favorite streaming service because it's time for Television Hut. And this is the hut in which, in this case, we respond to popular demand to talk about Stranger Things. So we figure we've, uh, A, given everybody who has access to Netflix time to binge watch it, and B, we've put this segment at the end of the show. So if you are planning to watch Stranger Things in the future, you can uh, turn off this podcast now and then turn it back on when you're ready to hear us jaw about it. Uh, so, Ken, we both really uh, love this show, so there's not going to be a contrarian view here. Not so much. Uh, so we're going to, uh, I think, uh, just try and dive in and see why this show is so successful at uh, doing what it does. It's extremely well-wrought on pretty well every level, whether we're talking about the uh, screenwriting, the performances are really strong, the new young actors are very exciting, the production design is great, the music is mm -hmm. bang on. It really is, um, in its evocation of the cinematic 80s world of Stephen King and John Carpenter and a little bit of Steven Spielberg as well, it's a really interesting sort of homage to those things because in a way it's kind of better than all of them. It not just evokes those things the way uh, that uh, a lot of other people are trying to do. You know, I guess we've come around in the cycle of homage enough that uh, people want to address the 80s, but uh, it's better rot than a lot of the things that, that it is inspired by. So, Kim, what, where do we want to grab onto first in that long list of things that we can praise about it as we attempt to uh, unpeel the onion and find out why it works as well as it does? I mean, first off, I think you want to begin by pointing out that it's created by Matt and Ross Duffer, the Duffer brothers, who were born in 1984. So it is not, Matt and Ross Duffer are not like Ken and Robin. They are not people who grew up and were marinated in that as children and had, or 
early teens or late teens, um, stop it, and um, had that sort of poured into them as adults, these are people who found it as history and then said, oh my gosh, nothing in life is as great as 1984 television was. And while they are right, it is an odd thing to say about the year of your birth. I, for example, outside Fall of Delta Green, do not run around trying to evoke 1965 in my uh, aesthetic. Um, and so, therefore, I think that's kind of an interesting question, is where do a couple of early millennials come off loving our Gen X past so much? What do you think is the is sort of the, the inciting incident for that? Um, I, I think it's actually a really common pattern. If you look at uh, from the beginning of when there were film buffs, which is the 60s, the uh, generation of people who came up, marinated themselves in film, and in this case, film and television, and then became filmmakers, reached back past a generation, past the current stuff that a lot of it seemed like junk or that they wanted to do better stuff than, and found the previous generation and rediscovered things that had been forgotten. So the sort of film school USC crowd, the uh, your George Lucas, your Peter Bogdanovich, Spielberg himself, those guys looked back into the classic studio films of the 30s and 40s, and they were aided in a way by a sort of a critical awareness coming out of France from the Cahiers de Cinema movement. An another whole bunch of people who were becoming filmmakers themselves, Godard and Truffaut and Agnes Varda and so forth. And so they looked back and they found all this stuff that had been consigned to the rubble, or in that case was you know, languishing in, you know, odd slots on television late night or whatever. And they found the genius in that. And so a lot of the 70s movies start out kind of being commentaries on the classic Hollywood films. And, you know, almost every one of those directors, including Scorsese uh, and, and Paul Schrader, made a version of The Searchers, for example. Right. And then the sort of indie auteurs who were big in the uh, 80s and 90s looked back to those directors, to the directors of the 70s. And when you look at 70s films, they have a very distinct vibe to them that seems, again, very apart from what's, what was being done at the time. The ever more processed films of the, uh, the big tentpole studio system are very different from the kind of laid-back, naturalistic, character-driven 70s movies. And so you saw a whole wave of uh, indie auteurs taking all of these things from the 70s, which they weren't kids for, and re-envisioning them in their own language. And now we've just reached the part of the cycle where people are now digging up the 80s films, which at the time were sort of like, oh, here we're going to go and turn things more commercial and aspirational and more processed. But by today's standards, all of that stuff now seems really charming and, and quaint and homemade compared to our giant CGI superhero blockbusters. And so I think it's just all part of a natural wave of things. And so that, you know, 30 years from now, people will be looking at the movies of the 2000s and the 2010s, and they'll be seeing things in them that we don't necessarily perceive because we're just immersed in that style. It's not right. a different style to us. So there's one particular shot in Stranger Things where the uh, camera sort of dollies up kind of on a gimbal in order to move in on an object that uh, is important to us. And I looked at that and went, wow, that's an 80s shot. And <laughs> I never would have thought, oh, well, this is a characteristic of films of the 80s that the camera, 
you know, slowly moved around and panned and moved into something when it wanted to emphasize it. Just the fact that you wanted to visually direct the eye on a screen to that obvious degree is something you never would have done in the 70s. But now in the 80s, directors are saying, hey, look here, I'm telling you a story. I'm telling you a story. Look, look over here. And so that whole cinematic language, which maybe I, if I'd seen a John Carpenter or Spielberg movie that did that, I'm going to, oh, yeah, he wouldn't shoot it that way these days. Maybe I would have noticed that. But this generation coming to it with totally fresh eyes as a weird discovery that they've unearthed has uh, been able to see it anew and build on it anew and make something that is takes the things that you wouldn't do anymore and doesn't do those things and takes the things that have been forgotten and still cool and brings them back to us. And one of the things I think that's sort of a secret influence on it is uh, Twin Peaks, which is not 80s, obviously, it's it's 90s um, and sort of was one of the first guns of the of the 90s declaring itself not the 80s anymore. But it's David Lynch, who, of course, is very much a 1980s director. And every now and again, you get someone who edits it like it's a modern day TV show. But by and large, it's edited similarly to Twin Peaks. There's a lot of long shots that then turn into character moments. There's a lot of um, uh, even the, the sort of the tension uh, the scary monster shots aren't chopped up to hell and gone the way that they are nowadays, because with computer editing, it's super simple to do that. They, they still do that a little bit. It's not a seamless job. I don't think of 1980s style editing, but I think that one of the ways that one of the things that they may have asked themselves is how do you do the thing? How do you do the Spielberg uh, movie? How, how do you make it, but not terrible? How, how do you do that? And the answer is, well, let's look at the first season of Twin Peaks. Let's look at those uh, beats and those uh, and so, some of that visual and directing language. Do you did you see Lynch? And I also heard Angela Badalamenti in the score um, underneath sort of the carpenter, which was the obvious influence. But down in there, I heard a lot of Angela Badalamenti beats, especially at emotional moments uh, in the story where Carpenter wouldn't care. Um, but Car Carpenter's interested in, oh no, there's a monster coming. Oh no, there's a monster coming. <laughs> like, and he's sad. And he's sad. And, and you got a little of that also in the Stranger Things, but in the same diction, I guess, as the Carpenter score. So it, it, it blended in a little more. Did you see a lot of Twin Peaks in Stranger Things? I think in, in the sense of it has to be television pacing rather than movie pacing. And so if you're looking for something that finds the, uh, strangeness, the upside down, in a small community and you want to do that pacing in uh, a TV format rather than movie format, that Twin Peaks is an obvious place to look. The uh, sense of irony is very different. The sense of dark, the, you know, the spirit of it is much more like a, a less manipulative Spielberg than it is uh, like Lynch. But I, I think you're right that there are uh, little stylistic touches in there because Twin Peaks itself was retro. And mm -hmm. it's retro to the 50s and 60s. And so right. uh, it makes sense that, especially in a small town in, in Indiana, that, you know, small towns are always 10, 20 years behind the cities anyway. Um, and so I guess it sort of moves us on to production design, because one of the things that I really loved about the film was that the way that it captured the real way that people dressed in the 80s, as opposed to what you usually see in an 80s evocation, which is you see people dressed the way they were in 80s movies and music videos, uh, which, you know, absent, you know, Beverly Hills High School is not how people dressed. Right. And so they obviously have used for reference actual 
high school yearbook pictures and other photos of people from that era. And so they have the, the clothing right. They have the, uh, the wood paneling. They, they really captured it and they don't camp it up because it's, uh, they are creating a naturalistic, uh, real seeming town and set of characters who are less cartoonish than they would have been in the 80s equivalents. And so there is a realer psychology at work to go along with the uh, realer look of the film. And, and one of the things, for example, that I think is really sharp about it is the way that it redeems the bully, that the 80s film would have just stopped at punishing the bullies. Yeah, he would have just been eaten. Yeah, he was just a, he would just have been a bad guy who Or he would have just ruined the trap, right? He would have stepped into the um uh into the into the bear trap and gotten himself caught and then they would have to be do we save him from the monster or not? And that would have ruined everything. But instead, no, he when the moment where he jumps over the bear trap was the moment where uh I mean, I loved the show constantly. There was no point at which I was not loving it, but I I extra loved it at that moment where Steve jumps over the bear trap and I'm like, "Oh, they didn't do the thing that they were going to do." I was so happy. <laughs> yeah, they they set you up to have the expectation that it's going to be an 80s movie, but it turns out to be uh deeper and and realer than uh than the way that screenplay would have been written at the time, which is uh so it's not just a pastiche. The 80s stuff is is a foundation, which is uh, really great. Uh, the performances, uh, not just the, the young actors who uh, all have these different great uh, spirits and uh, bring this uh, quality to their performances that, again, is uh, like the lead kid, uh, Mike Wheeler. On the page, he is not super fleshed out. He's very much sort of an iconic character that you're just sort of projecting yourself onto as he's the leader. And mm-hmm. that's basically his character. Um, but the actor does a really great naturalistic job of delivering that performance. And it's more naturalistically directed than it would have been at the time. Or, you know, uh, Gaten Matarazzo, who's the, uh, the sort of goofy one in the, in the trio mm-hmm. is the, the, uh, the chunk, if you will. Yeah. But uh, it's, <laughs> but he's, he's not, yeah. he's so specific to who he is and he's got a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's not just the goofy guy, but he's got this great spirit and he's the kind one. And, uh, and, and the 80s version would have also just sort of played up more that they were losers, right? That they, yeah. Here they're being bullied, but, you know, they're not overcoming loserdom. They're, they're just they're doing pretty well, except for the fact that there's these guys who, who kind of need their uh, comeuppance. Again, you can compare this to It, which I talked about earlier, the, and which turned out to be 1990. I thought it was a little earlier than that. But well, the 90s didn't start till 92. So. Exactly. The 90s don't start until uh, George Bush uh, uh, until is, the is inaugurated. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, anyway, the larger point being the, it is very, is, is 80s despite being shot in 19, being released in 1990. And they deliberately call the kids losers. They're literally the losers club. Tim Curry is great. Don't send in a bunch of emails about how I don't like Tim Curry. Tim Curry is great. Tim Curry does a great job with Pennywise, but the script is a mess and it's not a super good job. And if you sort of compare it and Stranger Things, which, is it's shorter, obviously. Um, although God knows how it came out of a Stephen King novel, but the comparison in sort of the characters are, are more, are more cartoonish. The story is more forced. Um, and everything that's good in the novel is sort of implied or absent in the miniseries. Whereas kind of the opposite is true here. If you read the story of stranger things on the page, as you say, it would be sort of, well, that wasn't really much of anything, but when you see it created for the TV, it 
has a sort of a extra level of life that is brought on not just by the production design, which I want to give a shout out, not just to the people, the way people are dressing, but literally every wall in that show is a wall I saw in my adolescence. The, the physical structures are perfect. Um, when I talk about the gaming hut, that's that basement right there that they were playing. They're playing in the damn gaming hut. I, I was looking for the Peter Frampton album. <laughs> Frampton cover. comes alive. Well, but um, the, he was already into the Clash. So. He was already well. That's that's because he has an older brother. Yeah. Who, who who brought him up right? But Sandy Peterson has that Demogorgon figure and has mm-hmm. had it since he was a kid. Yeah. So the the uh, and um while I'm while I'm sidetracking, I want to point out that another thing that it does, uh, similarly to the generally also pretty terrible movie Killer Elite, um, but it also has really ugly cars. We we think of the 80s as, you know, oh, finally auto design comes back from the 70s. But, of course, it didn't. I mean, the, the K car is still a thing that, the, you know, everything coming out of Ford and, and, and Dodge and is, is pretty hideous looking. So, except for, like, the one iconically decent car, everything in the show looks like garbage, which the same thing happened in Killer Elite. All the cars that all the cool action heroes are driving are junky, terrible 1980-81 cars. And the same thing was done in this. So that was a good job going to the whole thing. Let's talk about Winona Ryder, because I think people have sort of questions about Winona Ryder's performance. And even people who like the the show are like, I think Winona Ryder was a little over the top and crazy acting. Oh, my God. The, she has to do – she her character, except at the very end, is mm-hmm. required to strike the same note again and again and again and again. And I think she does a really brilliant layered job of maintaining yeah. that uh, level of pitch. And I think that uh, if you are saying that that is a bad performance, I think you are reacting to the difficulty of watching it because she is so good. And yeah. you're trying to pull back from it emotionally. And, I, and I, one of the things that her her character's job is and that Winona's job is, is to remind us that, oh, yes, this is a crisis. That there is a real life being torn to pieces by this, because otherwise you sort of fall back into the sort of stand by me warmth of it and say, oh, it's kids and they're on a little adventure. And you need that constant reminder that, no, this is uh, destroying people. This is a real bad thing that's happening because for obvious reasons, they can't keep cutting back to Will and show him being hunted by a monster. A, because it overexposes your monster and B, because it would be empty space, which there is also very little of in the show, which is part of why I loved it so much. Um, good for the Duffer brothers for making eight episodes instead of 13 and having five of them be, eh, well, that was all right. I, I liked the one where they went and fought the Rougarou in the side, but yep. that wasn't really part of the movie. Yeah. If you're on Netflix, you can make the length of thing it's supposed to be. Yeah. And I think there was an interview with them where they showed up and the, they talked to Netflix about their show and. They said, well, we kind of only have eight episodes. And Netflix was like, okay. And they're saying, this literally never happens. That <laughs> <laughs> They don't think Netflix understands how to run a network yeah. yet. But it's not as, HBO. It's Netflix. It's not It's not TV. It's actually TV. Now, I guess we've talked for a while. So maybe we, we, we can't get to the issue of the Justice for Barb movement uh, in any great depth. So maybe we can revisit uh, in greater depth the idea of uh, uh, when it is okay to kill off a sympathetic character in order to increase uh, the stakes. Oh, okay. So All there right. are a lot of people uh, who identify with Barb and are really upset. That- again, because the uh, casting was terrific, and Shannon Purser does a great job acting as Barb. Yeah. Which, again, in the 80s, and she's an 80s character down to the hairdo, 
in the 80s, she would have been played much more broadly and she would have been used. Um, uh, the killing of Barb would have done nothing except to establish that uh, Nancy is attractive. That that would have been the job of Barb in the world. Right. And that B- Barb has more jobs is just an evidence that they, you know, the Duffers thought about all their characters. And, and she would have kind of deserved it, right? That that's a, a big part For of For being a buzzkill. Right. That, that's a big part of the Stephen King moral universe is that yeah. the characters who get killed off are sort of cartoony figures who kind of deserve it. And on both of those fronts, you're then able to distance yourself from the horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a sort of a an EC comic sort of justice being needed out. But here, maybe in season two, there'll be justice, but there's no justice in this otherwise uh, beautiful universe that there's uh, somebody who just gets uh, snuffed out for not doing anything wrong at all, but because monsters are dangerous and, and horrible. So, and the other thing that's dangerous and horrible is running too long on your podcast. So uh, there's too many things to praise about Stranger Things. We didn't even get to the structure of how it does investigations and has like three parallel lines of investigation where they're all learning about the mystery. Too many good things. Too many good things uh, because it's eight hours of goodness and we don't have eight hours to describe all the goodness. So uh, I hope that was the sort of goodness uh, you, the listener, were hoping, 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 hoping we would get to. And I've, uh, and now that I'm making up new words, uh, I think it's time for us to uh, bid everyone farewell and we'll rejoin you in the same streaming arena next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Grass. Askfagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Join such luminaries as... Linda and Mike Schiffer. Philip Masters. Tenant Reed. Wesley Griffin. And Alex Johnston. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>